Amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen. Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups. It's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com. Blog Talk Radio. Good afternoon. This is Gigabit Nation. I'm Craig Settles, your host, and we're here today to talk about broadband, as we always do. We're trying to find ways to help uh, public, private, and nonprofit organizations get broadband everywhere it needs to be in America. Today, we are going to look at a program that uh, I'm surprised a lot of people actually don't know about, but it's been around since uh, since the late 90s, and that's the E-Rate program, uh, developed to help um, get technology into uh, schools and libraries and help push this technology out to um, a lot of the communities that, that are underserved. And so it represents an avenue for uh, funding for broadband projects. It also can be somewhat complicated. And today, to help take some of the complexity out of E-rate and, and help you better understand how to take advantage of that, I have with us today Gary Rawson, who is the uh, state E-rate coordinator for the Mississippi Department of Information Technology Services. Gary, welcome to the show. Glad to be here, Greg. Glad to be here. And uh, you've been at this for a while. I found out you've been at since 98, you said. The program started in 98 as a result of the Telecommunication Act of 1997, so I've been uh, carrying it ever since. As I've told many people, often E-rates like a, like a tattoo. Once you get it, you can't get rid of it. <laughs> De- definitely going to last a lifetime there. Well, it can, yes. Okay, you know, now I, I first heard about E-Rate actually quite a, a few years ago myself, but I am surprised at the number of folks I run into, particularly broadband um, stimulus winners, who actually are not aware of the fact that the E-Rate program exists. So for those uh, those uninitiated folk, what exactly is E-Rate? E-rate is, um, as I mentioned, a result of Telecommunication Act of 1996. Uh, It is administered through the Federal Communication Commission, and they have a nonprofit organization, Schools and Libraries uh, Administration, or USAC, Universal Service Administration Company, and Schools and Libraries Division is a division of USAC. And that's where the uh, program is administered and controlled from. The reason stimulus uh, awardees aren't familiar with it, uh, as everyone knows, stimulus comes out of NTIA, and those are two separate entities in D.C., and they don't really talk to one another. Uh, So uh, there's much, I don't want to say confusion, but uh, much unawareness between the two programs. Um, at a, uh, a National Association of State Telecom Directors conference we had several years ago, I invited um, participants from NTIA and uh, FCC uh, to speak uh, on a panel. And when they were there, we asked the question, uh, do you people work together to make sure that, that NTIA, the stimulus program, the VTOP programs, are complementary and not um, competitive with uh, with E-rate, and they looked at one another and they just said, "Well, we talk," and that's as far as they went. They wouldn't answer the question, so mm. um, that's where the program comes from. It's from the FCC. Okay. So now, what are the the parameters of the program? The program is primarily uh, intended to benefit schools and libraries, as public libraries and any K-12 school. Um, some pre-K is involved if the state recognizes pre-K, but community colleges and and uh, universities are not eligible. It's primarily a K-12 uh, program and public library program. They're they're all treated equally. Mm-hmm. And it the the discount it's a discount program. It's not a, a grant program. In other words, you have to receive services before you get any funding assistance. So it's a, it's a discount program on services that you receive. Services 
um, that that are eligible, of course, internet access and telecommunications and internal connections, and that's the local network equipment and wiring and such within a school or library building, and then also maintenance on that equipment and wiring. Uh, there's Priority One services. Priority One meaning we fund or they fund these services first, and that is Internet access and telecommunication services. And then any funding that's left over goes to the uh, Priority Two services, which are your uh, internal connection and maintenance. Uh, this is the first year since the program started that it appears that Priority One services are going to consume the available funding, and that available funding is about $2.3 billion each year. Wow, that's pretty. I, I didn't realize it was quite that uh, that hefty. So to make sure I, I got this right, uh, an, an organization contracts for certain services, and those services are then discounted. Now, is it a question that you have to pay and then get a rebate check, or you negotiate the discount as part of the uh you know your 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 effort as the in, the institution that's receiving the money well it, it, here's the process you have to have a competitively bid contract meaning the school let's let's say schools and I won't say schools and libraries each time but the schools the applicants have to have a competitive bid uh contract or they could use tariff month to month services like in telecom uh, inst- uh examples um, but they they get a contract and then they they receive they get the file out uh, fill out an application and receive a funding commitment. Once they get that commitment, then starting in July it goes to July first through June thirtieth. Those services can then be discounted for the entire uh, funding year based upon the discount level. Now an applicant may choose, for example, a telephone bill. They may choose to pay their uh, telephone bill for the entire year, end of the year, seek reimbursement, and they'll get a check back for the amount that that is discounted. Or the applicant may choose, instead of getting a check, they may say, I want a discount on my bill, and I want my uh, uh, invoice discounted each month based upon uh, my discount level. Now, the discount level is based upon poverty level. Poverty level is determined by... Eligibility, not not what the children uh, eat at lunch or how they eat, free reduced or not. It's eligibility of um, the free reduced uh, national school lunch program, free reduced program. So you determine uh, discount based upon that, and discount ranges from 20% all the way up to 90%. Meaning applicants can pay 10 cents on the dollar for uh, telecom service, internet access, and all those other services. I mentioned earlier, and, um, and so. Uh, but to your point, the applicant chooses which way they would prefer that—a discount on invoice, which means they only have to pay up to 10%, uh, as high as 10%, or as low as mean the high discount, but pay as as little as 10% on the dollar, um, or they can just wait and get the reimbursement at the end of the year or every six months or whichever way they want it. But it's controlled by the applicant. Okay, so what would a typical, like describe, I guess, a typical process? I'm ABC school in, you know, uh, in, in a small town, and I decide that I want to get, I want to take advantage of E-rate. So what, what would what would the steps be? The first step would be they would have to contact USAC to establish an entity number, a build entity number. And then that number is registered with USAC or Schools and Libraries Division, and then that um, the entity becomes eligible to be an applicant. The applicant then must uh, file a series of forms, uh, one form to establish a competitively bid contract, and once the contract is awarded and uh, they have uh, signed it and, uh, and followed, following all their local and state procurement rules, of course, then they make application in the fall once the window. There's a window that's open, uh, uh, application window. Once that window is open, then the applicants are then able to apply for services with the uh, service providers with whom they've contracted. So they fill out, it's called a 471, so they fill out a 471 seeking discounts on these services. 
that application goes in to USAC. USAC reviews it, and if they agree with all the services, meaning they're all eligible, if they agree to a proper contract and everything else is followed properly, then they issue a funding commitment decision letter saying, okay, you have the authority to uh, receive discounts at this dollar figure with these particular service providers and that's called a funding request number, FRN, for each uh, service provider. And then um, after that point, they can notify the, they, the applicant, can notify the service provider and say, hey, I received uh, approval for this, so starting in July, I want to start these services, and you will be providing me discounts, either through discounted bill or through a bare uh, reimbursement or uh, a bill entity applicant reimbursement which is a, a payment at the end of the year, um, that notify the applicant that services start and they are eligible. Therefore, in July, the services start and they start receiving their discounts. Now, in, in no case does USAC or SLD issue a check to the applicant. It's always through the service provider. Uh, in other words, if, if I'm a school and I get a 90% discount, and if I want discounted bills, I pay the service provider 10% of my bill, and then the service provider in turn invoices USAC for the 90% remaining, which is the discounted portion, and then USAC cuts a check to the um, service provider. Now, let's say that I'm a district, I mean, I'm a school, and I want to pay in full. So I pay my invoice just like I've always paid, 100% of it every month when it comes out. And then at the end of the year, I file the BEAR, which is a, another form to build entity applicant reimbursement. I file that form, and then in turn, USAC sends a check to uh, the service provider, who in turn cuts a check to the applicant. The, the applicant only gets checks from the service providers, not USAC, and USAC only cuts checks to the service provider. Um, now, I, it kind of may be kind of late to raise the question, but why why have such a convoluted process? Well, it, it all goes back to the Telecom Act, and it's, it's funneled through the telecom providers. As you know, on your bill, everybody's bill, there's something called a universal service fee. Right. That fee is collected by the telecom providers and contributed to the uh, to USF Universal Service Fund um, each quarter, and then that USF funding uh, is collected is, is administered by USAC Universal Service Administration Company. They uh, collect the funds, deposit the funds, and then they disperse the funds. Now remember, E-rate is just one USF program. It there are four. It, it's high cost, uh -huh. which is changing, uh, low income, and rural health, and E-rate. And um, uh, of course, high cost was the one that gets the most dollars, even more than than E-rate. And um, that's morphing into Connect America Fund now, as we all have heard about. Uh -huh. but, uh, so that's they did that because they channel it through the service providers. The service providers are one providing the services and contributing into the fund. The FCC only regulates service providers and nobody else. So they went to the group that they regulate. Now, of course, that gets into another area. E-rate service providers are not all telecom providers. We know that. Mm -hmm. But initially, it was going to be just the telecom providers, and that has changed as the, the program matured and uh, became much more than it was uh, originally designed to be. Now, how do you how does an organization address you know this issue that was just written about recently, where you know the the providers, the service providers, aren't giving full on discounts or not giving as much of a discount as they should, and no one seems to have a handle on that. I mean, how does the the organization figure out if they're getting a good deal or not? Well, it's. Typically, it's handled through competitive bidding, uh, where they file a form, and the form that goes uh, is on the USAC website, and everybody in the nation sees that. That's typically how it's done. But we all know that there are there are areas in the country where there is only one provider, and what does that mean? Another way of saying that's a monopoly, and therefore they charge whatever they want. 
and um, there have been providers that know that E-Rate is paying, federal funds are paying for some of the services, and therefore they charge potentially, possibly, even higher rates to schools and libraries. Now, what this has brought to light uh, is that that's illegal. And, uh, you know, if uh, I talked to someone in a, a Midwestern state last week, and they have determined that that has been the case, that the schools have been paying more um, than the local entity. And I said, well, then what you do is is you find an invoice for the same service that your school paid for that the bank is paying for and submit that to uh, FCC. And the FCC, I guarantee you, will take care of it. Uh, and then the service provider will end up you know, having to deal with that situation. But the majority, the vast majority of applicants in this country don't even know about those situations. All they, they follow the E-rate rules as they've always done, just like prior to E-rate and even some today. You know, you get a phone bill, you pay the phone bill. You don't even, you can't even read it. It's it's written in such a way that you're not supposed to be able to read it and understand it. So they get a phone bill, they trust the phone company, they pay it, and they assume they're getting the best rates possible. But we all know that's not the case. But they don't know that there's any any recourse for them. So, you know, it's going to be now that this has come out and uh, is you know, become uh, uh, such a hot topic, uh, maybe something will happen sometime But it's going to basically be the responsibility of the um, – uh, it's basically going to be the responsibility of the schools or the community or wherever to figure out what the real deal is and to be able to somehow lobby – uh, on behalf of their constituents. That's true. But all it takes is one school to be able to, to say, my invoice, I'm getting charged more than uh, someone down the street from the same service provider for the same service. Does it mean a community has to step in? Well, it could be, but what it if, if you could say it this way, the, the people at the bank or anywhere else uh, should contact the school if they want to find out and say, look, I have this service at this rate. What are you paying? Are you being abused? And, you know, the community could communicate with one another to determine if a provider is abusing the system. But um, but it doesn't have to be a community that, that uh, lobbies or files an appeal or anything. All it takes is one individual uh, from the school side, for that matter, mm-hmm. uh, to contact the FCC, and, it, and, and that starts the process. Okay. So th- so there is hope, as it were. <laughs> uh, absolutely, because I've already been talking to some people that mm-hmm. are doing that process. They are, that are um, uh, you know, investigating it on their own, especially in the, the very rural areas where they have a uh, private phone company and uh, and I don't mean to pick on private phone companies. Uh, in this one example that I know of, uh, it is a small private phone company, and um, they are they the school is going to uh, investigate it on their own. Now, I don't think many people do that, to be honest with you. Okay, so there definitely needs to be a higher um, uh, they need, there needs to be a higher awareness of the process as people start down this journey. It sounds like. Absolutely. To fully understand the potential problem and the impact on them, uh, because the article that the guy, uh, Jeff, I think was his name, and I can't remember his last name, but uh, the guy that wrote this article, as a matter of fact, he called me, interviewed me about this article to find out what was happening in our state. Well, our state it doesn't apply because we have a state master contract for our schools and libraries, and we as a state agency, meaning me, uh, mm-hmm. you know, look at these things. So our state, it didn't apply in our state. And the reason he called my state is because we obviously are a poor rural state, and often that's the ones that are uh, become victim to this because of the um, uh, inability to have uh, much competition. So anyway, I, I spoke to the guy. A very interesting conversation, interview. But um, but since his article came out, it's been it's it's gotten a lot of uh, attention in the in the E-rate world because a lot of people say, well, does that impact me? Could it impact me? Well, of course it could. 
but then you've got to or somebody's got to go out and do a little research to determine if this is happening. Okay, so you got to take a little bit of effort and responsibility for your own. Uh, so, I mean, I know which I guess is, is is a fair assessment. I mean, it's it's a big world, and there's a lot of bureaucracy and a lot of stuff going on. Um, now, as far as the provider of services, can community broadband networks be a provider of a service, or could a community create a, a co-op or or some sort of nonprofit to be the um, the, to be the the organization that deals then with the e-rate program. Absolutely, and many have. You can have anywhere from a, a uh, municipal network, uh, like a small town, like we have a, a Columbus, Mississippi. Uh, the city decided to install fiber throughout the city to connect its multiple entities together. So it's city-owned fiber. Well, the FCC has determined that because that fiber passes in front of uh, all the city schools, that the schools, not, not just in Columbus, but this is all over the nation, um, but because that fiber passes by the school, why force the school to pay a telecom provider for circuits when they have free service or low-cost service in front of, you know, in, in their uh, uh, across their property? So the FCC has agreed to allow municipal uh, entities or anything like that, uh, a nonprofit organization. In other words, anybody that's not a telecom provider, they can provide the uh, WAN services and even Internet access uh, to the schools and libraries. Hmm. Now, again, they have to be a provider if they want to receive the discounts. But what many have done, even in Columbus, what Columbus did is they leased their services to an eligible telecom provider who in turn leases the services back to school. The service provider is just the go-between and the one handling the accounting. Now you say, oh, well, you add another layer of um, bureaucracy to it and potentially uh, costing the school more. Well, they did, and, and the service provider naturally is charging a fee to do this, but it's still much cheaper than the school having to build out or the service provider having to build out infrastructure to the school and then charging the school for that build out. So the school and the program and the city and the service provider all benefits with the mm -hmm. shared services. Now you can take that a step uh, level higher and go to the state level. Many states, North Carolina is a good example, uh, they have... Um, North Car uh, NCNC, North Carolina Network Coalition, I think is what it's called, uh, and several other states have something similar, but they've established a 501C, I don't think it's a 3, I don't know if it's a 16, I don't, I don't remember what C it is, but it's they've established a non-profit uh, organization who in turn contracts with uh, service providers to provide statewide networks, and then the entities, meaning the schools and the the libraries and you know all these other government entities in the state, mm -hmm. they connect to this network that is actually managed by a 501c3 or 12 or whatever it happens to be in that case, but it's a nonprofit, and um, so therefore again, the nonprofit um, provides so many add-on services. Uh, for the schools and libraries, it's another win-win-win for everybody. Schools save money, organization manages and provides more services, telecom providers have good, clean contracts uh, with the state, and it just relieves um, them of the burden of trying to manage all the, the, the many, many services that schools and libraries want. For example, they... Uh, the uh, nonprofit organization established some library resources for the, all the libraries in the state, and so as being part of that network, they have access to these uh, really nifty applications and uh, curriculum and and um, video content and many many other things. Mm -hmm. So yes, to answer your question, they do uh, allow and even encourage the creation of uh, uh, consortiums or. 501c3 uh, organizations such as that. Mm -hmm. Now, what would be a consortium, say, versus a co-op or a nonprofit? Well, a consortium is uh, like you'd have a consortium lead. Uh, for example, 
my state agency is the consortium lead for the entire state. The State Department of Education is the consortium lead for the schools. The library, the State Library Commission, which is the state agency for libraries, is the consortium lead for the libraries. So you can have those state consortium leads that uh, uh, consolidate services, uh, generate state master contracts, uh, do various other things, uh, have centralized access to Internet, centralized filtering and all those type things uh, that are necessary and needed by the schools and libraries. You could also have, that's a state uh, telecom network or a state consortium lead, but you could also have a smaller group. You could have a collection of schools or you could have these educational service agencies, ESAs or BOCES or whatever you want to call them, many names in many mm-hmm. different states, but these are these educational co-ops, if you want to call them that, and they create a consortium. And um, as, as a matter of fact, many of those serve a dual purpose that they are consortium lead at the same time that they are a service provider. You can't be a service provider and consortium lead for the same service, but you can uh, be both if you clearly separate the two. But see, yes, there's several models uh, by which you go by, but consortium means that you're procuring on behalf of, and a lot of times these nonprofits, they're not simply procuring on behalf of, meaning they're buying for buying the services and paying for them on behalf of um, the schools and libraries. They're getting the obtaining the services and adding additional services with it, bundling it to make it more a, uh, of a complete service package to the uh, to their customers, which are the schools and libraries. Mm-hmm. Now, in that kind of a scenario. When you say they have to be a provider, is that the part where they become a um oh now I forgot the, the the exact phrase, when you become registered in essence by the state as a telecom provider? And there's a no, whole what it means oh I'm sorry. No, I what it means you have to get a spin number, which service provider identification number. Okay. And your your state uh P U C public utility commission, whatever that might be called in your state, um, they only register uh telecom providers. Uh, ISPs, Internet Service Providers, don't uh, register with the Public uh, Utility Commission because that's not regulated uh, by the Public Utility Commission, just like it's not regulated by the FCC, those services. Mm -hmm. So um, uh, the only requirement is uh, you and I can start a business tomorrow of being an ISP, Internet Service Provider, and all all we have to do is go get a, a spin number and then start trying to sell our services. So in essence, an ISP can become a under the FCC under the E-rate rules can become an eligible recipient then of the recipient of of the, the dollars, meaning they can provide services, discounted services to schools and libraries. Yes. Okay. Huh. That's interesting. I never knew about that part. Um, well, so that's what your educational service agency ESAs. That's what they became. Uh, they would. They would buy the Internet from a provider. They they would be a, a Tier 3 provider, for example. The ESA could be a Tier 3, Tier 4, whatever, whatever mm-hmm. it happens to be. But what they do is they buy the Internet, and then with that Internet, they bundle all kind of other services like management and coordination and um, uh, even some applications and such. And then they, in turn, uh, sell those services, bundle that services all that's eligible. They can't bundle ineligibles with it. But mm-hmm. what they all these services as a management tool, uh, they, they in turn sell that to the schools, and that becomes uh, because they're reselling it. They are an ISP. Now that has received some controversy uh, over the years because of how they bundle things um, in that, and, and what you end up having. Uh, is that E-Rate is basically fund, uh, funding these ESAs because of all the services they bundle. Mm-hmm. But the original intent was to allow them to get a consolidated um, Internet connection to their location and then disperse that or share that service at a low cost out to the schools downstream from them and school districts. But over time, they've added more and more services uh, to that, most of the services are very good, uh, meaning that you know it's video content, teacher training, and and many things like that. But then when they get into some of the other 
Um, the filtering is not eligible uh, for E-rate discount, but they bundle that, and that's getting into the weeds too much. But anyway, um, uh, yes, people can uh, very easily become ISPs, and that's how, if they're not a telecom provider, if it's P1 service, they have to be an ISP. Like I mentioned, the municipal network a while mm-hmm. ago, mm-hmm. if they were to go get a spin, uh, they can't get a spin as a telecom provider, so they have to get a spin as an ISP, and then the service is Internet access because that's the purpose of the connections. Mm-hmm. So there's a there's a fair amount of planning that needs to go on on the front end of this process, it sounds like, just because... I mean, just the complexity of getting all of the documentation, even if you go into a traditional provider, it seems, you know, because you got your window of opportunity, you know, when you can submit and you got this form, that form, and so forth, it sounds like uh, a definite exercise in planning is called for uh, to make this thing work well for you. Exactly. And, and all the forms connect to one another. Mm-hmm. For example, if you want to know the forms, you start out with a tech plan. You have to have a tech plan. It connects to the 470, which connects to 471, which connects to the 486, which connects to the 472. And so all these forms are connected. And you miss any one of them, then you lose out on your funding. Mm-hmm. It is a complex program. It is a detailed program. I don't like to use the term complex because that's discouraging. It is a detailed program. But if you follow the rules and you meet the deadlines, you do what you're supposed to do, and there's tons and tons and tons of guidance and assistance out there, uh, then you will be successful. And, um, you know, the the states across uh, the country have proven it, and the applicants across my state have proven it. Mm -hmm. I mean, we're approaching, since the program began, of getting five or utilizing $500 million. I mean, you think about that for a small, you know, poor state like mine, $500 million since the program began. Average of uh, between 35 and $40 million a year. And that's huge. So, uh, you know, it's, you don't see that in the paper. Uh, you know, you don't read about it when you look on Internet news or anything like that unless somebody gets caught defrauding the program, but other than that, you don't hear about it. But but it's $2.25 billion per year, every year since 1998 across this country, mm-hmm. and that that is huge. This is true. Now, how do you protect yourself as a city or state or whatever from fly-by-night consultant types? Because I'm, I'm, I'm pretty sure that with the availability of money and the... Um, you know, intensity of the application process, there's got to be a, a few characters that just kind of creep out of the woodwork that you just assume not do business with. How, exactly. how do you protect yourself from those folks? Well, it, it's uh, difficult to do, but see, they they don't contact me. They contact the, the, the schools and the districts, and they, they promise the world, and, and they say, we'll make it simple for you, and many of them do. There are many, many, many very good consultants across the nation. But yes, there are some that are out there just for the quick buck, and then they, um, you know, they get paid for the consulting fee, whether they, um, they the school gets funding or not, and then they disappear, and uh, that's happened many times over. But the uh, but USAC recently uh, started a, a consultant registration number, where if you're going to consult, you have to register with USAC. Now, you don't have to attend training. You don't have to prove anything about yourself. You just have to get a consultant registration number. And therefore, and the applicants have to put that number on all of their applications to see if there's a consultant that's helping. And from that, if there's consistently uh, a number of applicants under a single consultant that are being denied or uh, have some kind of problem, then they can go back to that consultant and say, you know, do we need to help you learn more about the program? In other words, they don't accuse them of anything. They just say, maybe you need a little more training on the program so you can serve your customers a little bit better. Um, and uh, that has happened several times. But I will tell you this. As I mentioned to you earlier, there's this organization called State E-Rate Coordinators Alliance, SICA, and I chair SICA. And I've chaired it since it started uh, about 2000. 
um, and in in almost every state. In other words, we have 47 states that are members, and we have over 100 members because obviously many states have more than one coordinator. But every state has uh, a state coordinator, and um, they're available to the schools and libraries for assistance. And uh, so many states, like in my state, we have very few consultants, and all the consultants we have, with one exception, are all state consultants, meaning they're state coordinators, I mean uh, uh, district coordinators, ERIC coordinators that have retired and now are doing consulting on the side. So, um, uh, so there's many options. All districts do, or all applicants don't have to go to consultant if they will contact their state coordinator for assistance. But uh, yes, there are many uh, consultants that are uh, not so ethical. Uh, but over time, they get weeded out because uh, you know the the rate world is a small, closed world. Uh, as far as communications, and if you have a consultant, uh, even SICA helps out in this. If there's a consultant that's consistently causing applicants to be denied, word gets out pretty quickly, and um, uh, they're they just don't get any business. They don't get any contracts. Mm-hmm. So there's going to be a certain level of trial and error, and you know, sort of sort itself through. But but I guess the the converse of that is. People who are good will become well known as well, and then subsequently those will be the ones that, if you go to a state coordinator, they might point you to, or however they can within the parameters of you know you know being able to do that kind of thing. That's right. Okay. That's exactly right. So, what are some of your success stories? Let's hear about what's been going on in Mississippi, thanks to E-Rate. Well, again, as you know, Mississippi is a, a poor rural state. Uh, I mentioned the eligibility, um, I mean, the discounts of uh, uh, your applicants based upon eligibility of pre-reduced program, which is the poverty level. Well, the highest discount you can get is 90%. Mm -hmm. Our state average is 85%. So that lets you know that the vast majority of our districts uh, and our schools get the maximum discount uh, available. So therefore, we've been receiving, you know, uh, a large sum of funding for our services uh, throughout the years, many years program. Uh, we have 100% participation in the schools and uh, eligible entities, meaning the eligible schools in the public school sector uh, that are participating in the E-rate program. 98% of the libraries, and I've always wondered why we didn't have 100% of the libraries, found out it's because in many very small towns, we have uh, almost something like a bookmobile that they've taken the wheels off of it. Uh, yeah. They have small libraries that only open on Saturday. Uh, there's only volunteers there. Uh, they have their own cell phone. They just open the doors up and they do book swaps and such as that. So that's why we, uh, they're still listed library, but they don't get any E-rate dollars. Mm-hmm. So um, we have uh, you know good participation. Uh, the thing that I'm Probably, that's one thing I'm proud of. But the other thing that I'm very proud of is because we're a rural state, what E-Rate has done with schools and libraries, you think about in your town uh, or any town in your state, and it's a small uh, town, small community, what's generally there? A school. Uh-huh. And so what the schools have done is through E-Rate, they have pulled infrastructure to their school. All right, by pulling it. Now, you know what the telecom providers do? They push infrastructure. Mm-hmm. They push it out where they think they can sell the services. Right. So, you know, there's a small neighborhood that springs up somewhere. Uh, they push the infrastructure there to capture that um, uh, that customer base. So they push it there hoping that they'll come. They build it and they will come. Well, what schools do, existing schools have done throughout this nation, is they've pulled infrastructure there. They say, look, I want broadband service at my school, wherever it happens to be, rural town, rural state, whatever. And so, therefore, the providers say, well, it's going to cost this much money to do it. And the school says, okay, fine, I'll get a rate discount on it, and let's do it. And the service provider said, okay. So E-rate ends up paying for the build-out and has paid for the build-out of a lot of broadband infrastructure to the rural communities uh, of the country. 
Therefore, that makes it available to the community. Mm-hmm. Again, uh, and, and Craig, when you and I sat on that panel in Dallas, I made this comment. The problem is that once you get broadband to that community, what is the application that will ride across that, that, that fiber that small entities and even residential customers can afford? You know, there's mm-hmm. no real low-cost Internet for uh, small customers. A school or a library, they they deal with broadband. You know, it used to be they would have a T1. Well, T1 is nowhere near uh, close to what they need now. So, you know, we're talking 12 meg, many of them much higher, 45 meg, and we even have them with gig connections now. But uh, so, but the, the the small business that needs basically a DSL line or maybe a T1, you know, that's not affordable through that that fiber yet. So uh, even though the the broadband is being pushed out there or being pulled out there by the the uh, schools, and now the community has broadband access, they don't have in many cases they don't have access to an application that's affordable. So therefore, the adoption is not where we need it. But that's changing. I mean, we we know that's going to change over the next several years. We've had many, many conferences and discussions about that. Mm-hmm. And that we just have to be patient. But that's that's the, the thing I'm most proud about, or one of the things I'm most proud about in my state is as I drive down small rural dirt road uh, on the right hand side of the road, I see these white poles with an orange cap, and that tells me two things: one, there's fiber right there. Two, that the other end of that is probably a school mm-hmm. that it's, it's serving. So uh, it is built out, E-Rate is built out uh, broadband uh, throughout the state. And, of course, we have these, these mapping programs that uh, that we all have been dealing with or most all of us have been dealing with as part of NTIA. And what those mapping programs show is they don't show that there's uh, exactly where the fiber is, but it does show that there is... Uh, uh, much more fiber available than we thought. The only problem we don't uh, that we do have is that we don't have adoption uh, or accessing that fiber uh, by residential customers and very small businesses. Mm-hmm. Now, there there has been, I think, until recently, a restriction on using what was it, the infrastructure that was created by E-Rate to provide services to people who were not in the schools or in the libraries. Um, Can you talk a little bit about what the restriction was and what really happened with reform? Because I kind of had trouble getting a clear answer about, well, what exactly did the reform mean when they announced you know, when they announced that that there was some reform happening, I think it was near the end of last year when that came out. That's correct. And what that is is uh, the schools can now open their facilities up to community use. But what that means is here's the problem. The schools have all this broadband, all this technology at the school, and then at 3.30, everybody leaves. Right. Uh, And then, uh, but many of them have adult classes or uh, community college classes or, what you know, any numerous, any number of things. They may even have a community uh, center. And what would happen over the years or prior to two years ago, if adults or anybody other than a K-12 student utilize those services, then that's ineligible use, so therefore they had to cost allocate. So a school would have to pay money back uh, based upon a cost allocation that's very complex and difficult to prove. Mm-hmm. So the applicant world has been fighting for this, fighting this uh, for years, that it should not matter because it does not cost the school anything, does not cost the program anything. So why make us cost allocate? Well, we didn't get anywhere with it. But then you had the National Broadband Plan to come out. And, uh uh-oh, that opened all kind of doors. And that's one of the things they mentioned in there is that anchor institutions such as schools and libraries should be able or should be offering their services, opening their services up uh, for the community so that people could come to the school as a community building, as I mentioned a while ago, and utilize the facilities and E-rate discounted services without penalty. And that's what, what that led to, is that schools can now open their doors up 
as long as the school is not in operation. In other words, this community access cannot compete with students' access during uh, normal school hours. But after-hour use is perfectly okay with no cost allocation. So you could have a uh, vocational school that has a, or even a community center at, on campus, or the school could have a very nice uh, lab, computer lab, or the library could be, the school library could have, you know, a lot of services, uh, a lot of equipment, and all of that can be opened up to the community to come in for digital literacy or adult classes, GED, uh, just any number of things, whatever is needed uh, and wanted uh, by the community. Uh, they could um, go in and use the facilities without fear of the school having to pay money back. Mm-hmm. Now, how would this uh, – say I'm a broadband project planner, right? I'm getting ready to, um, you know, figure out, okay, we need – you know, if I look at the community as a whole, we may need $2 million to build out the entire community. If we were building a network that was going to be re- used by – businesses and and students and seniors and everybody else. Now, how could I, under this new ruling, work E-rate into it so that somehow some of that cost of building the infrastructure can be, in essence, covered by, by E-rate? Well, it, it, and not get into trouble, of course. <laughs> that's true. But here, here you mentioned... You bring up several topics. One is that if you have a, a school that is not connected to broadband now, that means they're very, very rural, uh, difficult to, for any provider to get access there, uh, and it probably means they're they're very small. Either they could not afford the um, non-discounted portion to get E-rate to help them fund it. In other words, E-rate would pay up to 90%, and they couldn't afford 10%. Mm. of the cost of getting infrastructure there. For example, if you have, you know, $700,000 uh, build-out cost, 10% of that, $70,000, is still a lot of money to a small school. Mm-hmm. And therefore, they couldn't do it. So, But any of the easy-to-get-to schools, or almost all of them uh, that are easy to get to, uh, they've been served. They have broadband services to them. But let's let's assume that we have a school, small community, that does not. So how could the community leverage E-Rate to get the services there? They they work with the school to uh, say, okay, um, the school can apply for, they can pull the infrastructure there, and then E-Rate will pay, again, for the special construction charges, uh, the uh, discounted portion, and the, the recurring charges. But the community can work with the school to say, all right, if, if you do that, then we'll help you pay your non-discounted portion so that the school is not burdened to the point that they can't afford it. So they get a good contract, they contact the service provider, they get um, uh, E-rate to, to fund that build-out, and then the community can pay the non-discounted, help pay the non-discounted portion, the 10%, for example, and then uh, the service provider will put the services to the school and well, what you have to make sure of is that they don't put a circuit to the school. The difference in a circuit and then public infrastructure is that a circuit is a private connection in last mile connection. Uh, some people say a last mile connection to the to the school, and then the circuit cannot be shared by everybody. Uh, okay. As, you know, but if they put public infrastructure out there and then have middle mile connection to the community, and then last-mile connection to the school, then you can have multiple last-mile connections at the end of it. So that's how you leverage. You work with your school or library to uh, to help them get the, the infrastructure built out to them, and then once it's built to them, then the whole community has access to it. Whoa, Okay. <laughs> That stretches the some of the financial capability of my brain on the first pass through, but I think I got the basic gist of it. It's a um, it's doable, but you got to be very careful about where the circuit sits, and, and and which basically comes back to my earlier point about you have to plan and scope this thing out pretty well. I mean, you got to know you know which part of the infrastructure is going to go where and sit where and how and who's going to use stuff when. 
you know, so it's a lot of mental gymnastics, but I guess the end result is that you will get support probably where you couldn't have had support before, you know, by doing those gymnastics. Exactly right. And But here's the other thing. You know, go back to Connect America Fund. You know, why not leverage Connect America Fund uh, with E-Rate to help build it out? And uh, at the conference, the... the um, uh, NTIA, I mean the um, well, it was the NTIA and Shelby conference that I saw you the other day. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I mentioned this to the lady at the FCC and said, "How can we leverage the two programs to make sure they're not duplicative? Why can't Connect America Fund build out the infrastructure to the community and then E-rate dollars be used to build out that last mile connection to the school and not put all the financial burden on E-rate?" And she said, that's a very good point. That That's a conversation that's not being had at this time. Just like BTOP didn't talk with FCC about, you know, duplicative circuits and such as that mm-hmm. uh, that we have now. But um, but anyway, that um, that is an interesting conversation to have. Back to your point. Yes, what you do is you get your, your community leaders, your schools, and your service providers into a meeting and discuss all these things. And somebody in the room, I hope, has a good understanding of all these various programs and can say, well, you can do it this way, but here's another way to do it. This is what you cannot do. For example, you cannot you cannot put a circuit to a school or a library and then the community connect at that school or library. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. That can't be your central office. That can't be your network, your community network hub. The school cannot be. The library cannot be, even though that's been talked about. Uh, they can't be. So that's why when you build out public infrastructure, public meaning available to the public, not private infrastructure, mm-hmm. not dedicated infrastructure, you build out public infrastructure to the community, which means you have a network hub of some type off school property, off library property, that uh, everybody, then your last mile provider or providers you can have more than one, can then connect, and they don't interfere with the school circuit or library circuit. Mm-hmm. As a matter of fact, BTOP requires that, that you have interconnection agreements or the ability to do so, and that you ha- you, you build out middle-mile connectivity, meaning multiple providers can connect to it at some point in the future. Mm-hmm. And, um, hmm. I mean, I'm pondering the possibilities there. There definitely are a few. Is the issue of bringing grant programs together, is that a battle that we have to rely on being fought at the Washington level to get NTIA and RUS and all these entities to talk to each other, or is there a way to orchestrate a local version of that dance, you know, where you can somehow not have to go all the way to Washington to convince two agencies to talk to each other? Well, that's been attempted in many states. Uh, You really need a state entity that has jurisdiction over all these programs. But um, BTOP, for example, uh, we have a a governor's task force on uh, broadband, Uh, but BTOP didn't go through the governor's office. Uh, You know, some BTOP providers go or went directly to NTIA, and they got awarded uh, for projects in particular states uh, without the guidance or jurisdiction of even the governor's task force. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, you could have and you do have uh, BTOP awardees that are building out infrastructure that is not in the best interest of the state, where you have duplicative circuits, uh, you have providers cutting fiber as they deploy fiber. Now, what does that tell you? Well, that means you already got fiber. So why are we using BTOP funding to build out fiber where there's already fiber. It's supposed to be putting it where there is none. But, uh, you know, that's another conversation for another day. But Mm -hmm. um, the best thing is if you have state coordination, because we all know the federal entities do not talk to one another in in this sense. Um, uh, The uh, GAO, what is that, General Accounting Office, uh, out of the White House, uh, I was invited to a conference there one time, or uh, not a conference, it was a meeting, several people there was a meeting, 
and you know they asked me uh you know what I thought about the biggest problems I said one of the biggest problems with broadband deployment uh in states is the fact that there's all these federal programs that are pushing broadband to the states without any federal oversight and uh, it's duplicative it's competitive it's contradictory uh and and this was before BTOP but um and they all agree, but there's just no. I mean, I know we we're talking about uh, broadband coordination at the federal level, and a lot of people say, "Well, you can't do that because you can't take state control away." But uh, you know, there are the problems. You have all these federal dollars coming to states with no coordination, and much of it is is uh, spent most inefficiently. Wow, that's a heavy burden to take. <laughs> it is. I can see. I can see where there's a there's a definite need for, I don't know, greater. There's a need for greater orchestration, but I mean, it's not even it's not even just a question of taking power away from the states. I mean, you basically have entrenched bureaucracies that are territorial as as countries are. I mean, it's ridiculous. You know, in in that environment, and then you have the Congress, and then you have the White House, and then you have, you know, whatever whoever is hanging out on the peripheral, you know, all trying to kind of coordinate and orchestrate and all of that. It really is a challenge. Then, I mean, I guess that's the bottom line. It's not going to be an easy road. On the flip side, I guess you would agree that it is definitely one that requires a certain amount of. willingness to work and willingness to work at compromise at the local level to sort of counteract the impossible situation at the federal level. Well, that's true, too, but you have state entities that don't communicate with other state entities, like you have Department of Transportation that gets um, federal dollars to build out a fiber uh, camera network, an IP-based video network, so therefore, they lay fiber all over the state. Do they share that fiber? Do they share uh, right of way? Uh, in some states, they don't. Uh, they go out on their own, and then, uh, and then along comes a school or any other entity that needs fiber that runs along that same road, and then they step off six feet and put down conduit, and so they have duplicative services uh, simply because the state in many cases, does not share its resources. Uh, then you have service providers that do the same thing. You know, one service provider is not going to, uh, in most cases, help their competition uh, when it comes to uh, gaining right-of-way or gaining access across uh, a large river or uh, whatever else it might be. So everybody does their own thing, and everybody just worries about their own little uh, basket of, of berries to be concerned with. And boy, is it trouble at very picking time. <laughs> yep, that's right. Well, this has been um, enlightening. Do you have we've got about two minutes left? Do you have a sort of a last word of you know encouragement slash advice to give the listeners? Well, when it comes to E-rate, uh, you can go to eratecentral.com, and when you go there, you can look at uh, look under the states tab. And you can see a map of the United States. You click on your state, and you can find out who your coordinators are, schools and libraries, and um, get to know those people. If you want to know about broadband in the E-rate world, that's the people that you want to know. Mm-hmm. Also, you can see the dollars that are being um, uh, committed to your state, and you'll be amazed uh, to see how much has been committed. So that just gives you an E-rate report, report card if you want to look at it. Uh, that way, mm-hmm. uh, for your individual state, eratecentral.com. Mm-hmm. Then I will definitely make it a point to um, to both check it out, talk about it where I can, and um, I assume that's www.eratecentral. That's right, e-ratecentral.com. Ah, uh, don't forget that. Yeah, right. Okay. Okay, so that's going to be a wrap. I mean, this has been extremely valuable. I appreciate your time and the benefit of your expertise because Lordy knows you've been at this much longer than many folks have, undoubtedly. And so 
Um, don't let them don't let them steal you away to Washington. I'm not sure if the, if Mississippi would be well served, but uh, yeah. it's, it's definitely it's definitely been enlightening to our audience to have this conversation. Really and have you given given them my email and contact information if they have any questions or anything? Mm-hmm. Okay, I'll so definitely do that as well. I'm so available thank, anytime. All righty. Uh, so thank you to our audience uh, for listening in. We really appreciate it. Thank you to Hiawatha Broadband Communications, our sponsor. And again, thank you to Gary. You have been extremely helpful, and I definitely appreciate it. My pleasure. So, well, we'll talk again someday. Have a great Have a great week. You do great. Take care, buddy. All right. Bye-bye. What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders, from ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities. CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers.